Good morning. It's such a joy and a privilege to be with you this morning and to be launching into a new series of messages for the next 10 weeks into the fall. I not only want to welcome each and every one of you who are in the sanctuary this morning, but to also those of you who are watching online. We know that we are still more scattered than we usually are, and yet the spiritual unity of us belonging together to the body of Christ, that we're not just a church building, that we are a part of a special family of faith together. And I am so excited to be launching in to what we're gonna be doing into the fall. And in order to do that, I wanna kinda introduce that by having you say something that is probably quite familiar to you. Will you, in kind of the form of an open-eyed prayer, will you say and recite with me the words of the Lord's Prayer? Say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Hard stop. What does that mean? I mean, you have probably been praying that prayer for a long, long time. I've been praying that prayer for a really long time. And at the heart of that prayer is this phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? Are you anything like me that you're kind of on autopilot and you say that prayer over and over and over again and yet at the same time you're not really sure exactly how that applies to your life and to mine? Well, believe it or not, the most common thing that Jesus talked about while he was on earth is this phrase, the kingdom of God. Over a hundred times in the New Testament, Jesus and the New Testament writers refer to this phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It is the most frequent subject that Jesus addressed. Most of the time when he started a story, he would say the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he would fill in the blank with a story. And that's not only true, even though the vast majority of those references are in the Gospels, it is also true that that is even in the rest of the New Testament. In fact, the book of Acts begins with this really interesting part of the journey. Look at the first part of the book of Acts with me. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about what? Have you ever wondered what Jesus was doing after he was raised from the dead and he's like, I win. And then from that moment before he ascends into heaven, you're like, what was he doing for that 40 day period of time? The book of Acts tells us he was with the disciples, his followers, making sure that they understood the kingdom of God. When you get to the end of book of Acts, the primary figure at that point is the apostle Paul. And Paul is under house arrest in Rome, he is awaiting his trial before Caesar, who referred to himself as a son of God, who called himself king of the world. And Paul is waiting on trial for that moment, and it says this at the book of Acts, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed what? The kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so there's this idea of the kingdom of God that is central to the teaching of Jesus and to the explosion of the early church. And I want you to try to think through all of the sermons that you've ever heard 
and to think through all the Sunday school classes that you might have attended and to think through all the Bible studies that you've been a part of and maybe you're kind of a relatively new Christian or maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time. And yet, how much of that teaching has been about the kingdom of God? And are you anything like me that you could have spent a long time in the Christian journey and still not have a clear idea of what Jesus came to teach and to impart upon his followers? And I'm hoping over the course of the next 10 weeks that by the time we get to the end of it and you close your eyes and you say, the Lord's Prayer, and you say the phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that that prayer will have a whole different level of personal, intimate, and fervent meeting to you. So let's dive into the book of Acts to see this for ourselves. We're going to start our journey in chapter one, starting in the sixth verse. Then they, the disciples, gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taking away from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. May God bless not only the hearing and the receiving and the reading of his holy word, but as we put this into practice in each and every one of our own lives. I gotta tell you, kingdom is a really kind of old-timey or old-fashioned kind of word. I mean, isn't this the kind of thing that comes to mind for you when you think of a kingdom? You think of something that was from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And we don't tend to think of ourselves as having kingdoms today. We have municipalities, we have counties, we have states, we have cities, we have countries, but we really don't have kingdoms. I mean, that's something way back in the Bible where they had the kingdom of the Egyptians and they had the kingdom of the Canaanites and the Babylonians and the Persians. And then there was the Greek kingdom with Alexander the Great. And then there was the Roman kingdom with Julius Caesar. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of kingdoms back in Jesus' day and age, but, but we don't have kingdoms today, do we? I mean, do we tend to think of the fact that each and every one of us has a kingdom, is a part of a kingdom, and that those kingdoms aren't necessarily physical, geographical, or even regular boundaries. When we lived in California, we moved to California when our girls were four and five years old, and we moved to a home that was 25 minutes without traffic from Disneyland. And I remember one time getting to do a tour that somebody invited me on that was called Walk in Walt's Footsteps Tour. I mean, as somebody who wants to walk in Jesus's footsteps, how would I not want to walk in Walt's footsteps? And kind of to understand the history of what was going on when he built Disneyland in 1955. And when Walt built Disney in 1955, he wanted to take a magic kingdom and divide it into a variety of kingdoms because he wanted to tap into something that was true for each and every one of us. 
And I'm sitting there looking at this map that they have handed out to us about Disneyland, and I realize, oh, the genius of Walt. Because there are people who really live in a kingdom of Adventureland. And they live for the very next thrill. They cannot wait for the very next trip or the very next journey or the very next experience that they're going to get to have. And there's people who live in Frontierland and the very same spirit that pushed people with the ambition out west and the gold rush are the very thing that pushes people into the frontiers of business. And people live as a part of that frontier mentality in their kingdom. And there are people that live in the kingdom of fantasy land. And these are people who want to do anything to just to be able to escape this world that we're in and to be able to live into another realm. There's people who want to live in Tomorrowland and they can't wait for the next technology, the next gadget, the next invention, the, the next great product to be able to have that will forever change their life. And then there's a kingdom of Main Street USA a kingdom in which maybe you're living in a kingdom of nostalgia for the way things used to be in the first part of the 20th century. You see what Walt understood? He understood that a kingdom didn't necessarily have to be just a physical geographical boundary. A kingdom was an idea. A kingdom was a spirit in which you want to live. So here's what I want you to hear if you don't hear anything else. It's not a matter of whether or not you live in a kingdom. It's a matter of which kingdom you're a part of. I'll never forget the first time I had a teacher who taught me about the kingdom of God, not only by the words that he taught and the content of scripture, but by the way that when you met this individual, you just knew that you were dealing with somebody who was almost like he was from a different time zone. His name was Dallas Willard. And he had this non-anxious presence. One of the smartest people I've ever met. And he had no pretense. He lived simply. He loved gently. And every time I was with him, I felt like I was entering into another realm. One of the ways that Dallas describes the kingdom of God is he describes it of something that happened in his childhood. He grew up in southern Missouri, and he grew up in a farm without electricity. He said there was electricity around in the form of lightning. He's like, we had enough of that. But they didn't have any cables that would bring electricity to their actual farm. And he remembers the moment when he was a child, when the Rural Electricity Administration brought electricity to their very farm. It came into their region. And if you would accept it, it would change your life. You know how Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? Dallas says it was repent for the kingdom of electricity was at hand. Repent of hand washing your own clothes. Repent of the old ice box that was the only way that you could keep things fresh into the cellar. Repent of all the different ways that you used to live before you had electricity because once you had this power that came into your farm, 
you were able to live in an entirely new and different kind of way. He said the thing that surprised him the most, what surprised him the most is that there were some farms that said, we want nothing to do with the kingdom of electricity. We just want to live the way that we've always lived. And Dallas says that for far too many Christians, that's the way that they are. They hear about this gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet they don't want to be a part of his kingdom, of what he's doing in the world. And so Dallas Willard writes this, This kind of wondrous, awe-filling reality has existed and flourished from all eternity and in all eternity. God is reigning over us with an everlasting kingdom that he's invited us to participate in, contribute to, share in, and reap the blessings from. To have this humble, peaceful, wise, and loving kingdom of goodwill overwhelm every competing agenda, fearful scheme, or desperate plan to build our lives on the shifting sands of arrogance or ignorance. Such lonely acts of despair are forged only by those whose ears are deaf to the music and eyes blind to the beauty of the symphonic plenitude on which God has set all of creation. And such a God comes to the weary and the burden to whisper hope in our ear. What does he whisper? There's a kingdom. There's a kingdom where you don't have to be afraid anymore. There's a kingdom where you don't have to live in anxiety anymore. There's a kingdom where hate doesn't have to rule you anymore. There's a kingdom by which despair is overcome by joy and conquered by it. There is a kingdom where peace can be yours. There is a kingdom where you don't have to be in a chronic hurry all of the time and that patience is available to you and to me. There is a kingdom where gentleness and kindness can be a part of our everyday life where we don't have to keep treating one another in the hostility and in the anger and the contempt that we're living in today's world. That there is a kingdom by which you and I can be faithful and obedient and that we can genuinely love God and love our neighbor. There is a kingdom where one day he will wipe every tear away from your eye. There is a kingdom where there will be no more darkness. There will be no more night. There is a kingdom that Jesus announced and is already here in some forms and fashion. And the question is, are you going to live in that kind of reality or do you choose to live in the reality of another kingdom. Electricity has come. Are you living according to that kingdom? After 40 days of hearing about that kingdom with the risen Jesus Christ, the disciples asked that question that I think all of us secretly long for. Lord, is now the moment, is now the time when you are gonna bring that kingdom? And Jesus' response will surprise you. He does something and then he says something. The thing that he does when they ask the question as he floats into the sky and disappears. What on earth does that mean? Do you think it was Jesus with jazz hands going up in heavens and saying, that's all folks. I mean, we put that very image at the front of our church, front and center, not only in this congregation, but at the front of many congregations is this image of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Do you think that this is Jesus tapping out 
I finished what I came to do, and that's all. No, the ascension is about Jesus going to his rightful place as the Lord of all of creation to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so Jesus goes to be enthroned where he was veiled on earth up into the heaven. And what Jesus says is even more shocking. Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses. Don't you think Jesus could have done better than this? Because don't miss the you that Jesus is referring to when he says to the disciples, you will be my witnesses. Max Lucado puts it really well. He says it like this, you hillbillies will be my witnesses. You uneducated, simple folk will be my witnesses. You temperamental, parochial, net casters and tax collectors, you will be my witnesses. You will spearhead a movement that will explode like a just opened fire hydrant out of Jerusalem and spill into the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. Take for a moment, and I know everybody has, for the most part, masks on. Take a moment and look around this room for a second. Don't look up front, look around the people. You, the people in this room, are Jesus' plan for the kingdom. Jesus is advancing a kingdom. Jesus is on a multi-thousand year journey of bringing his kingdom to the whole world. And you are central to that plan. That he has invited you and I to be the primary means by which that plan, God's kingdom, is going to unfold. One of the strangest things that Jesus says in the Gospel of John when he's talking about the fact that he is going to leave, then the disciples complain about it. Jesus actually says, greater things will you do because I go into the Father. And so when Jesus leaves and he goes to his enthronement, when Jesus is celebrated as king over all, his plan in having done so is that the very presence of God's kingdom would come in and through us and that we would be the witnesses. But truth be told, we haven't done a very good job about being Jesus' witnesses of God's kingdom in our everyday lives. And I want to talk about for the remainder of this message why that is. Because you can't be a witness first and foremost. You cannot be a witness while you're trying to do something else. Did you notice what Jesus didn't say? Jesus did not say, and you will be the judge. Or Jesus did not say, and you will be my prosecuting attorney. Jesus did not say that you will be my defense attorney, as if God needs a defense attorney. Jesus did not say that you get to be the court reporter and just observe and write down what's going on. You don't get to be the bailiff. You don't get to sit in the jury box. You don't just get to sit in the courtroom and just watch and see how this goes down like you were watching it on TV. That is not what Jesus says. Jesus says that you will be my witness. And so much spiritual harm is done in Christianity and in God's name when we forget what our role is. 
because too many of us are trying to be judge and jury and prosecutor and defensive. And instead of understanding that, we have to understand that our focus, our job description, is to simply be a witness. And so you can't be a witness when you're trying to do something else. You also can't be a witness without firsthand experience. Can you imagine you getting sworn in and sitting in the witness stand in a courtroom and after you're sworn in um, and you say, you know, I've heard somewhere, judge is gonna throw that out, right? He's gonna say that that's hearsay. When you take the stand, you are taking the stand to give witness to what you have seen, to what you have known, to what you have experienced. I have a friend who once said, I want to live my life in such a way that when I die, you will not be able to explain my life without Jesus Christ. Would that be true of your life or of mine? That if you were to look at my life, it just, you couldn't make heads or tails of it without understanding the person and the work and the teaching of Jesus. Another way of saying this, which is the way that I like to say it, is live your life in such a way that your pastor doesn't have to lie at your funeral. (laughs) In other words, you've been given the responsibility with your life to reflect the image of God and all the things that God has entrusted to us. And so you can't be a witness if you're trying to be something else. And you can't be a witness if you haven't experienced the kingdom of God and Jesus and his relationship firsthand. And you can't be a witness without conversation was doing research this week on a huge study that was done in the United States on evangelism and literally was reading the book when I stopped reading the book on one statistic because I couldn't get past it. It says half of American Christians have two or fewer spiritual conversations in an entire year. Half of American Christians have two or less spiritual conversations in a year. I'm not talking about that, you know, oh, they didn't have like a big deep theological conversation. I'm talking about any spiritual conversation. Even if you understand that your role is as a witness to the kingdom of God and Jesus, even if you've had a firsthand experience with the risen and reigning Jesus, folks, if you're not having spiritual conversations, it just dies right there. You and I have to be willing to share our faith in a time where it is not popular. Did you know that half of millennial Christians think it is wrong to share your faith? We have an evangelism crisis on our hands in America. 
And so you can't be a witness without, as long as you're trying to be something else, you, you can't be a witness without a firsthand experience. You can't be a witness without conversation. And you can't be a witness without pushing boundaries. I am not meaning here that you have to be annoying. What I do mean is that when Jesus says that we're to be his witnesses, he says we're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that is basically an outline of the book of Acts where it's going to start, the movement's going to start in Jerusalem, then it's going to move out to the region, and then it's going to spill over into other regions, and then it's going to go all the way to Rome itself, to the ends of the earth. Your Jerusalem is your home, your family. Your Judea is your neighborhood. Your Samaria is the place where you don't want to go. Samaritans were considered half-breeds and they were considered hated rivals. Where is the place where you are called to go even if it's not popular? And we cannot just be concerned with our own neighborhood or our own city. We have to care about what happens in India. We have to care about what happens in Africa. We have to care about this whole world because the nature of the gospel is that it starts at home and it pushes its way out into the whole world. And one of the things that's happened during COVID is that all of us have turned inward more and retreated more. Global missions, my friends, has taken the largest hit in recorded history in terms of retreat, in terms of dollars. Because people are not concerned about the world anymore. They're only concerned about right here. I'm not saying we shouldn't ignore our own streets. We ought to pay care and pay attention, particularly to the safety and the security of what's happening in this city. And that's one of the reasons why we're gonna have a first responder Sunday on September the 12th but we also have to care about what's happening around the world. You can't be a witness if you're not pushing boundaries. And finally, you can't be a witness. It's not possible. It's not realistic. Without pain, without loss, without suffering. Southern California, I got to meet this man who's in this picture here. His name is Nick Vujicic. He was born in 1982 in Melbourne, Australia. But when he was born, something shocking was happened in his rare disorder. I'll show you another picture where it might be more apparent. Nick was born without any arms and without any legs. The only appendage he has is a surgically sewed partial foot. That is his primary means besides his mouth of being able to do or to grab anything. When he was born, Nick's mother wouldn't even look at him or hold him. She was so appalled, so afraid. And yet over time, this Slovenian immigrant family in Australia began to work through the challenges, not only of the limitations physically, but of the implications of what they professed to believe as Christians. 
and what went from a nominal faith through this birth became an explosion of spiritual renewal for Nick and for his family. It wasn't easy. You can imagine the ridicule that he endured as he went through school. But pushing through all of that adversity to the other side, you need to know that Nick is the kind of person that if you were to be in his presence, you would say he's in a different time zone. He's living now in the kingdom of God. In his book, Life Without Limits, this is his table of contents. It's almost a table of contents for somebody living in the kingdom. That you have a powerful sense of purpose, that you have a hope that cannot be diminished, that you have a faith in God, that you live with a love and a self-acceptance, that you have a courageous spirit, that you have a willingness to change, you have a trusting heart, you have a hunger for opportunity, the ability with joy to be able to even laugh at life, and you have a mission to serve others first. Nick is not living in the same way that most people who call Jesus Christ Lord lives. He lives by a different code. And he may either be in the kingdom of Southern California or the kingdom of Australia, but his true king and the values and the boundaries that he's pushing and his life is as a witness to the faithfulness of the one true king. I want you to pause for a moment and look at what we've talked about today. You don't advance the kingdom, you don't engineer the kingdom, you don't build the kingdom. You're a witness to the kingdom. And I wonder if there's an action item that the Spirit of the living God will put on your soul right now from looking at this list. Is there a little adjustment or a big step that you need to take because you realize that there's this kingdom and you're called to give witness to it? Many decades ago, before 9-11, I had a friend who was wor working in Washington, D.C., and because security wasn't what it is now, and you could go to a variety of places you couldn't go before, he had, this friend had security clearance and some connections where I got to have a, uh, just kind of a personal tour of this building. Do you know what this building is? It's the FBI. How cool is that? My favorite part of this tour was I got to meet somebody who was in a, kind of a higher up official with a little thing called the Witness Protection Program. And I got to ask a variety of questions, but I'll never forget what he said. He said, some people have seen something so important that it changes the rest of their life. Some people have witnessed something so important that their identity has to change. Some people have seen something 
and it has become now the center of their life. He's sitting there describing to me what it means to be a witness for a really significant federal crime. And what's going on in my heart? I wonder if I'm that kind of witness for the kingdom of God. Are you? Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for hearing the words kingdom of God, praying the words kingdom of God, asking your kingdom to come and with eyes glazed over, not even know what it means or why it matters. Forgive each and every one of us for not living as a part of your kingdom and forgetting that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations and there's been all kinds of different kingdoms that have come and gone and your kingdom alone endures. Father, may we have the longing for your kingdom in the same way that the disciples did in that moment. Is now the time. And help us, God, to be your faith-filled witnesses in the world. May we know that this is our job description. May we come to you personally. May we be willing to share, to push boundaries and even to suffer if necessary. Make us your witnesses to a world that is desperately thirsty for a different kind of kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.